Hello, and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your co-hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Rania. So Kevin and I have a great guest on the show today. We've got Dima Khaledi. She is the director of Palestine Legal. Um, and Palestine Legal and the Center for Constitutional Rights just issued this um, really meticulously documented uh, lengthy report called The Palestine Exception to Free Speech, a Movement Under Attack in the U.S. Um, and it's really daunting. Um, it's all about how, you know, this, this really well-coordinated effort to smear and intimidate and harass uh, Palestine activists on campuses across the country. So thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this report, Dima. Thanks for having me. So I guess, can you start off real quick? Because I don't think many people are, are familiar with Palestine Legal and the work you guys do. So before we get started on the actual report, why don't you sort of just give us some background on what Palestine Legal is? Sure. Um, Palestine Legal is an independent organization, and we advocate for the rights of Palestine activists in the U.S. to be able to speak freely about this issue without fear of intimidation and legal bullying and harassment. Uh, so we we our work ranges from uh, you know advising people about their rights and uh, and about how to deal with certain situations that they're backlash that they're facing for expressing their views and uh, we also uh, do know your rights work uh, to to make sure people know what their rights are beforehand uh, and and we document uh, these kinds of incidents of, of suppression uh, so that's where this report came from a, a, a few years of, of documentation of what's been going on on campuses and and elsewhere around the country uh, when when people speak out about Palestine and um, you know the, you know what really stark number in the report is that 85 percent of you know hundreds of incidences that you that you all have responded to since 2014 so since just last year involving the targeting of students and scholars um, are, have been baseless, either legal complaints, administrative disciplinary actions, firings, harassment, and false accusations of terrorism and anti-Semitism for people who've, students and faculty who've criticized Israel, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I mean, that's, like, um, that's a shocking, that's shocking. I mean, 85% of these complaints um, are shocking in the fact that people are being accused of terrorism along with anti-Semitism is utterly, it's like repulsive. But yeah, the, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the chilling effect this has um, on people's willingness to speak out on this issue? Yeah, that's, you know, I mean, the, I, there's there are a couple of reasons why things are focused on campuses. Uh, the first is because that's where uh, activism is happening right now. That's uh, It's one of the main uh, arenas for, for this, the movement for Palestinian rights. Um, we're seeing a, huge, a, a, a growing student movement that is uh, uh, making alliances and, and building connections with other social justice movements. So, so there's a lot of creative and and energized activity on campus to raise awareness about about what's going on uh, in in Israel, Palestine to Palestinians. Um, it, now, the, so that 85 percent of of cases we respond to being 
on campuses is, is really a result of the backlash these students are and and faculty and academics are are facing as a result. Um, we've we've heard that Israel itself and Israel advocacy organizations in the U.S. view this as a big threat, and so they are focusing their resources in turn on countering uh, this growing student movement. So. Um, what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, the, the students especially, I mean, I think students are, are often the most vulnerable targets uh, because they're young and, uh, and you know, impressionable and, and they, you know, uh, they have a lot to lose. <laughs> um, so we see them being targeted with a lot of this, this suppression, this, this backlash. Um, a lot of it, it are uh, it often it's personal attacks on individual students. So they are called out. They are, uh, you know, profiled on these websites like Canary Mission, uh, that, which has the explicit intent of trying to get employers to deny them jobs. Um, and, you know, they, they also face, uh, you know, they, they're, they're, they get racial slurs. They, they're harassed on social media. Um, and a lot of it is racialized, uh, Islamophobic. Um, it, there's a lot of misogynistic attacks on, on women. Um, you know, I think you yourself, Rania, have, have experienced this. So, so you have some sense of what yeah. that's about. Um, and, and the effect is, is really, it, it's really stark. Um, a lot of these students are, you know, getting involved in activism for the first time. And, uh, so, so it's shocking to them when, uh, they're singled out because they're expressing their views, uh, f uh in favor of Palestinian rights or, or expressing some criticism of Israel. Um, and what we're seeing is that, you know, we've heard a lot from students that they're scared to put their names on things that they write. Uh, for the media, um, they they don't want to join SJPs, the Students for Justice in Palestine chapters. Um, we've heard more recently of at least a couple of uh, of elected SJP leaders resigning from their positions uh, because of their profiles on Canary Mission. Um, and you know we're, we're we're seeing a lot of things like uh, uh, like people just being afraid to to uh, to speak out about this. So you know the, the thing about the chilling effect as well is that we don't know uh, uh, the the total impact of it because it it does mean that some people choose to stay silent uh, out of fear of, of experiencing the same backlash. Now, at the same time, uh, I think it's also fair to say that that a lot of people are also um, not being intimidated and uh, and are, are pushing back against this effort at, at censoring and, and harassing and intimidating people. And that's uh, amazing to see. And I think, you know, our, our report tries to expose this for what it is, a, a kind of McCarthyist uh, attempt to to silence debate on on an important issue, and it's being done uh, explicitly by organizations that that don't want this conversation to be had um, uh, because because it really exposes Israel's uh, Israel's uh, violations of human rights and and its behavior um, uh, for what it is. 
Well, I just wanted to bring in uh, some specifics um, about this Canary mission and uh, see if you had any sort of reaction to uh, an example of how Canary Mission is really impacting the lives of of individual activists. Uh, Journalist Max Blumenthal uh, co-wrote a a piece that just appeared at Alternet. It's a four-part investigation of Canary Mission, and, and actually Rania herself is highlighted in the story and and there's also mm-hmm. a woman uh Rebecca Pierce a young woman uh, a Jewish African American videographer and recent graduate of University of California Santa Cruz and uh the the specific example here is that on June 2nd less than 2 weeks after she appeared as Canary Mission's radical of the day she began receiving racist attacks and rape threats from a user um, on Twitter who was followed by the mission's Twitter account, remember Masada. Um, And he was, you know, racist and spewing vitriol and, and, and calling Pierce a capo or a Jewish concentration camp guard and telling her that only good capo is a dead capo. So, you know, this is a example of what's going on with Canary mission. And, you know, when, when we talk about this example here, I mean, there's, there's racist abuse, these violent threats. It seems to go on with no uh, concern or intervention from authority figures, uh, whether they be administrators or uh, on campuses or whether it be people um, who are actually in positions like the FBI. Or it, It's unclear what role they're playing to actually protect these sort of activists from any harm. And then also you have the fact that I notice in your report you talk about how it ends up being if you're threatened with these kinds of violence or threatened with this sort of vitriol that if it seems like you're under threat, uh, an administration at a campus might say you have to take on the cost. You have to pay for the security guards to protect your events about Palestinian human rights. That's right. I mean, that's that's really why we called the report the Palestine Exception to Free Speech. Um, you know, it, it there there is a, um, a, a certain double standard that happens when we're talking about uh, protecting the rights of people to to speak freely on this issue. Um, you know, uh, one of one of the trends we're seeing is that there's a lot of um, there's what we call official disfavor. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, it sounds pretty benign. You know, a lot of uh, university presidents are, are condemning BDS and condemning, um, you know, the actions of SJP and uh, and conflating them with anti-Semitism, conflating them with actual anti-Semitic incidents that happen on camp- campus, like plastic or graffiti, with, when there's no connection between the two. Um, and, and, you know, the... the it, what this does is to, to put um, SJP and Palestine activism in a negative light, but it also has the the effect of um, of you know that the, the universities end up uh, in putting all of these bureaucratic barriers up uh, when students are trying to organize around Palestine, and uh, you know the the effect on the on students organizing is, as you said, I mean, they, it, it, it really thwarts their ability to, to do their work um, when, uh, when 
we saw this at DePaul, for example. Um, they, they tried to have an event in support of Rasmia Ode, who uh, is, is facing um, uh, criminal charges for, uh, you know, for allegedly um, lying on an immigration application. This is part of a, a long uh, investigation of the Palestinian solidarity community in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, the, the, the several Zionist Israel advocacy groups complained about it. And uh, what we saw was that the university said, oh, we, we you know, there are these, these threats. Um, you have to pay security to have your event. Uh, so they pushed that burden on uh, the student group, um, and you know at a, this was at a private school. At a public school, this would not not be okay um, because it it puts the burden on the person who's trying to speak, right, based on what they're saying, um, because somebody finds it controversial. So under the First Amendment, that is not acceptable to to impose a security fee based on the content of the speech. Um, now, at, public, at private universities, it, it, it's harder to to advocate uh, uh, on this basis. But, yeah, we're, we're seeing a, a huge amount of um, very threatening, uh, um, you know, cyberbullying. Um, you know, another example is at Columbia University, uh, Rania, you're familiar with this, yeah. with this um, incident as well. Um, there, there was an event, and uh, a, a Twitter user um, actually threatened uh, to bomb the event or said this was a great opportunity to have all of these uh, uh, Palestine advocates in one room to, to, put a, to put a bomb. And the university did not take that uh, uh, very, very seriously. Actually, um, no. you know, they faced that one security guard. I, I also remember, like, in the, exactly, they sent a security guard, and, the, and when that happened, the I remember the students because I was I was on that panel, and the students were um, were debating whether they should even, you know, make a thing out of it because they were worried that the event would just be canceled. Um, because right. that's what happened, right. right? Like that's probably the and that's probably the point of saying something like that on Twitter is to just have the event hope maybe shut down. That the university mm-hmm. would, or that they would have to be, or that they would have to pay for their own right. security. <laughs> and I mean, like, and, and it's funny because after the event, they were like, you know, the SJP kids are so awesome, but like they're up against this really well-funded machinery, um, and they're literally operating like on their own time. They're volunteering their time, and afterwards, they were like selling cupcakes, you know, for some. <laughs> so yeah, it's like they don't have the money to to even if they if they wanted to, right, to put to have security guards at an event. Um, That's right. But, you know, again and again, we are seeing these kinds of very racialized attacks on people, um, uh, Islamophobic, misogynistic, um, and and it's really troubling. I I think Max Blumenthal's piece uh, uh, reveals that that the FBI may be investigating some of these kinds of – some of these – some of these real threats to people's safety and – you know, but but we don't see that on a regular basis. Um, and on the other side of things, um, the, you know, this is where the double standard comes in. Um, at, at the very at, at any complaint by uh, Israel advocacy groups about the activities of SJP on campus, um, you know, university presidents and other institutions are very quick to condemn, to cancel, to investigate, 
um, uh, you know, uh, any kind of complaints. Um, so this, again, this also contributes to the chilling effect that's happening. It contributes to uh, the suppression of, of speech on this issue in general or the attempted suppression uh, of this speech. Uh, so, so you know, there's, there's definitely uh, um, a difference in the way this uh, advocacy on this issue is being treated, um, advocacy for Palestinian rights versus advocacy for, for uh, Israel. Uh, and its policies. Yeah, no, I mean, one thing, you know, that I've noticed, um, especially with the report that you all put together, which makes it abundantly clear, is that on top of just the typical you know, uh, accusation of anti-Semitism, um, there's this, and I don't know if this is new, but I think it's it's being deployed more often, is this accusation of you're, you know, you're working with terrorists or you're like a terrorist group or you're, you know, just the, and calling like Muslim, um, Muslim students specifically or Arab students or like Muslim, this Muslim, you know, the MSA, the Muslim Student Association, like referring it to it as a terror factory. Um, and then in a time like this in the U.S. when, you know, it's already not easy being Muslim and having, you know, the spotlight on you in any way, shape or form connected to terrorism, um, even if it's, you know, BS accusations, <laughs> can be really dangerous, mm -hmm. right? Because, like, the, you know, that we are, have this really... Um really sort of tyrannical uh, uh, law enforcement uh, apparatus that goes, you know, that already spies on Muslims and is always looking, you know, to, to connect Muslims to terrorism as it is. So I, I don't know if that's, that's something right. new that's happening or just being used more frequently, but I, I see it as something, you know, that's being um, lobbed around, at least online, more frequently. Yeah, I think there, there, there seems to be a, a more uh, explicit effort to to try to connect um, uh, Palestine advocates with terrorism. And, uh, you know, it, it, it seems that this is also part of this, this growing trend we're seeing, um, that, that many of these Israel advocacy groups are, in fact, very intertwined with uh, the Islamophobia industry, if you will. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we're seeing this, this kind of anti-Muslim uh, vitriolic uh, 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 agitation happening, and and it's being superimposed on on Palestine advocacy in general. So there's a, a big attack on SJP. He uh, claims that it's not only anti-Semitic but has connections to Hamas, which is a designated terrorist organization. And this, these are really baseless accusations that are based on insinuations and and innuendo and uh and it's really dangerous uh in this in this post 9-11 climate uh when you know uh, the the mere mention of, of terrorism really bring can bring a lot of law enforcement scrutiny and we see also uh some of these israel advocacy groups explicitly reporting things to the FBI and to uh, other law enforcement agencies in order to bring that scrutiny on people. And, and I think it's, a, it's another uh, way to intimidate people by saying, uh, oh, you know, we think you're a terrorist and we're, we're going to um, report this and, you know, you can't get away with it um, when, when there's really no basis for it. Um, so, so it's, it's a really troubling trend. And, you know, we have laws in this, in this country that uh, criminalize so-called material support for terrorism, which, um, which can be anything from advocacy to actually 
uh, sending money. But um, but when when there's that possibility that advocacy, uh, human rights advocacy, can be criminalized in some way, um, it, it, it's really chilling and, and threatening, and and it's not not to be taken lightly. You know, we saw a Muslim teenager arrested because he, he brought a clock to school. That's the kind of, uh, 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 this is the era we live in um, uh, right now with, with a lot of anti-Muslim uh, fervor. So I've got two questions I'd like to uh, raise quickly before we would end this interview. Uh, one is to say that I was rather shocked uh, by something mentioned in your report uh, and you allude to uh, the, the larger issue throughout, but on DePaul, during uh, the divestment effort, the Israeli consulate sent officials to photograph and take video of students that were involved, and you raised the concern of this information being passed back to the Israeli government to prevent those individuals from visiting family or friends in occupied Palestine. Uh, so I'd like to uh, hear your thoughts about that issue, the, the the ways that the Israeli government might be operating here in the U.S. to repress Palestinian human rights activism. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've seen in several instances, that um, some of which are documented in the report, uh, that the Israeli government through consulates is involved directly in uh, in trying to shut down advocacy for Palestinian rights. And we're hearing this more and more, that the Israeli government is, um, you know, putting resources into fighting the BDS movement and Palestine in general globally and through legal strategies. Um, so DePaul is one example. I mean, this surveillance is uh, um, a theme here. A lot of these Israel advocacy organizations use surveillance methods to um to try to intimidate and uh, you know profile and track of and expose so called expose uh Palestine advocates um but you know we we've also seen this take uh, a different forms so for example um there was there was a lawsuit against uh the Olympia food co-op against some of its board members after it um it voted to uh, boycott Israeli goods. And it was revealed that um, the Israeli consul general in uh, in the southwest, in the north, sorry, <laughs> in the northwest, was involved in these conversations about bringing uh, litigation against the co-op. Um, so, so we've seen it in, in several instances that uh, that the Israeli government or its representatives are uh, directly involved in efforts to suppress through legal strategies and otherwise, um, you know, these uh, this, this advocacy. And, and we see them present on university campuses, um, you know, uh, to to counter divestment campaigns, for example. And that's what happened at DePaul. Um, the Israel Consul in Chicago um, was actually writing op-eds and, you know, speaking on campus and trying to uh, convince convince people that, you know, divestment was anti-Semitic and, uh, and uh, um, you know, uh, trying to undermine the, the kind of motivations of the movement. But, but the, the 
the surveillance part of things, I think, is really troubling for activists, especially Palestinians who who do uh, go back to, to home to see their families. Um, and, and we've gotten a lot of um, a lot of calls about, you know, uh, fear of, of going back, um, you know, questions about whether students should do something because they don't want, um, they don't want to be uh, stopped from going home. And, and certainly uh, several students who have themselves been um, uh, turned back at the border, um, and they think that's because of their activism and because of, um, uh, you know, possible uh, surveillance on them and, and them being public about it. So, so it's a real concern, and we know that that um, Israel is is deeply entrenched in the surveillance industry. So, um, so yeah, it's it's certainly a trend that we're seeing. Well, then, lastly, I just want to get you to address this uh, troubling trend where states are moving to prohibit or or impose uh, uh, legal, uh, not legal, but legislative measures that would force or make it even more of a disincentive for people to engage in Palestinian human rights activism. And then maybe the role that Palestine Legal, and I assume you'd work with Center for Constitutional Rights, the role that that, that you might see you, those organizations playing to go, go up against this trend. Yeah. Um, it, we, we've especially seen this uh, since... The, the American Studies Association passed its, resolu- its resolution to support the academic boycott of Israeli institutions um, in late 2013. So in 2014, there were uh, about a dozen um, pieces of legislation introduced in several states and in the U.S. Congress. Um, you know, some of them were merely non-binding resolutions that condemned BDS, that, you know, uh, uh, expressed their uh, unconditional support for Israel, uh, etc. But there were also several bills that were introduced that tried to defund universities that um, subsidize academic academics uh, to participate in institutions that boycott Israel. So they directly um, kind of targeted the ASA, the American Studies Association, uh, boycott. And what what happened in 2014 was that uh, several coalitions were built in different states, um, including with us, with Palestine Legal, uh, with, uh, you know, ACLU chapters, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, a lot of other local organizations that um, that really pushed and and made clear that these kinds of efforts were completely unconstitutional. They are a direct uh, uh, attack on academic freedom, on on the rights of uh, academics to advocate for uh, for human rights, um, and and we didn't see any of these bills passed um, because of that. Um, because of the coalitions really uh, uh, making an effort to to make clear that these things are, are unconstitutional and unacceptable. In in 2015, we've seen another wave of, of legislation happening, um, and it, you know that has differed in the sense that um, you know for in in Illinois, for example, there was a bill, there is a bill that has now passed um, that 
requires state pension funds to divest from companies, foreign companies, specifically that uh, that boycott Israel. So these are um, less obviously unconstitutional bills, but they they definitely still pose a lot of constitutional questions, uh, issues, and. Um, uh, you know, I think one of the main things that we are um, are trying to do at this point, um, there has been legislation. You know, there there have been threats that this kind of legislation is going to appear in you know 40 different states, and this is uh, uh, going to be a major push of, of Israel advocacy organizations um, uh, this year, perhaps. Um, but but what we want to do is make clear that. To, to advocates that that boycotts and divestment campaigns are protected uh, First Amendment activities, that in the United States, advocating for these things, um, it, it cannot be criminalized, it cannot be punished, or else it's, it's a violation of, of the First Amendment. So um, that's why we're not seeing a lot of these, these um, really uh, these bills that would have a real practical effect passing. Um, uh, and bills like the one that passed in Illinois, we don't think have very much of a practical effect. They, they are specifically targeting foreign or uh, foreign companies for that very reason, um, because to target U.S. companies or U.S. individuals would, would be contrary to, would be in violation of the First Amendment. So we are you know, trying to focus on um, on making advocates aware that that they have the right, the constitutional right, to engage in this advocacy, um, and this legislation doesn't affect that right. Um, at the same time, it's very troubling when we see these kinds of non-binding resolutions and, and other bills passing uh, often unanimously in state legislatures um, because it really illustrates the the extent to which Israel advocacy organizations have are, are pushing this agenda, pushing this narrative that uh, this human rights advocacy is somehow anti-Semitic uh, because it, it is targeting uh, the state of Israel for its policies um, and is somehow discriminatory. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of work to do to counter this narrative. And I think these, these bills are, are, are really an opportunity. This legislation is an opportunity to shine more light on the BDS movement, what it is and what it is not, um, and, and, and to get uh, hopefully also some, some positive uh, coverage and, some, some, uh, and to build momentum and to build support for it, ultimately. Well, on that note, Kevin, do you have any more questions? No, uh, thank you for giving me, uh, giving us your time yeah. and, and talking to us about the, the report and all these important issues. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad to, to have been on. Thank you very much. Welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, one of your hosts. I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And 
We've got horror and tragedy in Afghanistan to open up our discussion, sadly. Uh, so the Doctors Without Borders had one of their hospitals bombed. Uh, we were going to talk about all the casualties and what's going on with that horror. Yeah, it's awful. Um, so it looks like the U.S. Uh, bombed a hospital um, in Afghanistan that it had the according and it's, it was a Doctors Without Border hospital. Um, and I'm sorry about that. My printer just started printing things like randomly. Um, but, you know, we always have these cool background show, uh, sounds for our show. Anyways, um, yeah, so a Doctors Without Borders hospital was bombed uh for with airstrikes uh by the US and according to Doctors Without Borders um for more than 30 minutes after the airstrikes were initiated um they told um the US they continued to tell the US and send them you know information about where the coordinates were and to stop bombing and they wouldn't so there you have it 16 people were killed um including patients and staff and 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 several children um and several people, I think up to like 40 people almost, have been injured. And that number seems to be going up. So it's horrifying. And this was like one of the only hospitals or the only hospital in the area. Um, and so it looks like, Kevin, we were talking about this before we started recording, that uh, the this is a hospital that the Afghan security forces don't like because it treats people from both sides. So it does treat wounded Taliban. Um and so that seems to be a sort of almost like a justification that's being given by some U.S. media outlets in a weird, you know, underhanded way. Right. And so while uh, and we're also, you know, I just want to point out at this current moment that the United States is giving mixed messages. It's uh, and this happens typically. So they we're using the the diplomats, the State Department to issue a quasi-apology, suggest that this was a tragedy, uh, recognize the work of Doctors Without Borders and what they do in war zones. Meanwhile, uh, in a very, I think, you know, rude and crude manner, the Pentagon Secretary Ashton Carter is like, well, it's tragic, but, you know, goes on and justifies it all, saying that the U.S. forces were supporting Afghan security forces, and there were Taliban fighters nearby. So, not really going the as far as to apologize for what had happened. And uh, there's two hospital employees that the New York Times were able to talk to uh, in the last 24 hours that uh, said there were no active fighting going on nearby, and uh, that the Taliban fighters there weren't any inside of the hospital. So, uh, and, and all throughout, again, to reiterate, the Doctors Without Borders was saying none of these uh, people, the Taliban, none of them are, are inside, I think. And, and also that uh, people, uh, there's no Taliban fighting and, and, and we are a hospital. Uh, stop bombing us. Uh, they were attacked for like 30 minutes. It was... I mean, I think, you know, I think that this really shows is that um, it's a reminder that we are still bombing Afghanistan. Uh, oftentimes it, it's it seems like it's portrayed as a, a war that is no longer happening. Um, for some reason, 
Obama has been credited with like ending the Afghanistan war, even though it's still going on because he drew back some troops. But yeah, we're still bombing Afghanistan. Um, people are still being killed. There's refugees like a lot, uh, you know, a, a decent chunk of the refugees that we see um, fleeing to Europe are coming from Afghanistan. So, you know, it's that war is still producing refugees. Um, so, yeah, we're still it's just it's amazing. I mean, this week there was like a shooting. There was a mass shooting this week in the U.S. at a college in um, oh, and was it Omaha? No. Where was, I'm sorry, remind me where there was a mass shooting. I feel awful that I can't remember where exactly. Oregon. Oregon. Okay, I was looking somewhere with it anyways. There, but there was a mass shooting this week. It was awful. I think like almost 15 people were killed, 10 to 15. Um, and, you know, Obama gave this speech about it. Um, and it was a good speech, but like he's still off in other parts of the world, you know, executing these policies that are killing a lot of people um and it's terrible and you know i it doesn't get enough attention and now we bombed a hospital and it reminds me a lot of you know what israel does in gaza well we've been hitting wedding parties Mm. villages with women and children uh in 2011 the new york times mentions and actually what i do have to give credit this is a pretty good write-up of what happened there's Mm -hmm. some good context in this story uh, and, um, you know, I guess I'll, cre- I'll, I guess I'll name the individual journalist cause it's probably to her credit that this ended up being good. Alyssa J. Rubin. Mm. Nice job. Okay. Good job, uh, Alyssa. Because um, I, I don't want to credit the institution. I think the journalist right. is probably responsible. But, but the point I was going to say is that in 2011, there were nine boys that were gathering firewood on a mountainside and they were bombed. So like this continues to happen. And as you're right, like it reminds us that this war is still going, and even though we've tried to outsource it and put it uh, in the hands of Afghan security forces, those forces are very much under the direction of the United States. Yeah, and I think that that's a, you know that's a really good point because that's sort of been Obama's strategy. Um, it is to instead of having the U.S. do things directly, is to just have like special ops training. Um, people or to just be backing with weapons and diplomatic support um, really awful um, you know uh, regimes um, that are involved in bombing campaigns um, you know like Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen I mean that wouldn't be possible without the US that Obama's explicit support um, in both weapons and um, diplomatic support and I think earlier this week um, Saudi Arabia actually the week started out with Saudi Arabia bombing a wedding and killing like a hundred and some people. Um, and so that's like a thing that's happened during the Obama administration is these are things that the U S is responsible for, um, in a huge way, but it doesn't really get put on, you know, it doesn't really get put on Obama because he has other countries doing it for him or other security forces doing it for him. Right. And, uh, the other thing is that the, the way this is all just so perverted is that, you have things like – I think we can start to get into some of what was happening with the UN General Assembly. I know you wanted to talk about Netanyahu, but but as we're moving into talking about Netanyahu before we get to that, just to mention this, this thing that happened where people were seeing that Saudi Arabia is going to get to investigate themselves over <laughs> its war crimes in Yemen. And, and this is how it works. This is what um, – these world powers allow what the U.S. and uh, other, uh, I guess we'll say Western countries, but like, you know, the the United Kingdom and France and and others, NATO countries 
letting Saudi Arabia be the one that determines whether they committed war crimes. Yeah, you know, it's utterly, it's really amazing um, what Saudi Arabia gets away with. Like, Saudi Arabia is um, a, I mean, we all know Saudi Arabia is a backwards country, right? That's, like, ruled by a bunch of, klep, like, a, by a clan of kleptocrats, um, a fa- you know, this, this, this autocratic family. And, uh, and they can get away with almost anything. They're about to behead, I mean, they are planning on beheading a, um, a young, like a, a young man who's like 19, I think now. He was like arrested when he was 17. He's like a pro-democracy, anti-regime activist. Um, and I mean, it's that's a good thing. That's a good thing in Saudi Arabia. You, need, you know, we need more of that. And the reason Saudi Arabia gets to be the way it is is because it's like a, a tyrannical place where you you don't get to advocate for democracy, and if you do, you get arrested. Um, and so this kid's like about to be beheaded. Uh, and then after he's been sentenced to beheading and then afterwards his body's going to be crucified. Um, and Saudi Arabia does this a lot. Saudi Arabia be- has beheaded over a hundred people this year. Um, and this is by the way, the country that's at the forefront of supposedly saving us from ISIS because ISIS beheads people. So anyways, uh, but the, yeah, the point is, is that the state department was asked earlier this week, or I guess last week when people hear this was asked last week, if, um, you know, if they care, like if, if they talk to Saudi Arabia about this or like what, if they have a comment about this upcoming beheading and the response was, no, I haven't heard, you know, we don't, we don't know about that. And then, and then, on top of that, Saudi Arabia has been put in charge of this UN human of the UN Human Rights um, Council, uh, which is insane. I mean, Saudi fucking Arabia. Yeah, and it it will never get old to mention that there are still twenty eight pages from the nine eleven report that probably say that Saudis funded those attacks on the World Trade Center, etc. And they still are being protected, and that's right. a secret. Well, so, so, so Saudi Arabia was is... let me. Well, Saudi Arabia is the head of the Human Rights Council, and the State Department response to that was, "Yeah, there are allies. We support that." And to what you just said, Kevin, there was a court case that was recently um, that was recently decided. Uh, it was like the victims of or the families victims of nine eleven were suing Saudi Arabia, and U.S. court system uh, ruled that uh, Saudi Arabia has diplomatic immunity and cannot be sued in relation to nine eleven. So. Yeah. So this is this is this is what we do. Meanwhile, we run around complaining about ISIS and how heinous and brutal they and are. And they are. They are. Like yeah. there's no, you know, no no argument against that. They are. But yeah. Just, you know, makes us a little little tiny hypocrite. Little 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 bit hypocrite. Right. It's like oh, only so, like Saudi Arabia can behead people. We're cool with that. So Netanyahu, the uh, always willing hey. to take the stage and Saudi Arabia, one of Saudi Arabia's greatest allies, um, I should note. Um, yeah, so this week has been a week of a lot of bullshit news because it's the UN General Assembly took place. It's the annual gathering uh, where every year, like uh, every almost every head of state gives a speech, and then there's just lots to talk about, like superficial bullshit to talk about about what people said. And so Netanyahu's speech was was fucking like deranged. Um, so. He, you know, I'm sure everybody who's heard of it or saw it, I mean, he made big headlines because he did the the most bizarre thing 
and creepiest thing during his speech, which was after ranting for several minutes against the Iran deal and slamming. I mean, his speech was just so mean spirited and hateful and angry. And they usually are. Netanyahu's speeches are typically very hateful. But this just kind of reached a new level of hate where he was just the whole speech like was just looked like his he had smoke was going to come out of his ears and like he was going to start like shooting people like he looked like a maniac and um so after ranting against the iran deal and slamming the international community for what he called the the international community's deafening silence he spent 45 straight seconds glaring like scowling hard at the diplomats and ambassadors and world leaders in the room um in in complete silence like 45 straight seconds of silence, just like scowling. I mean, it was just, it looked like, you know, it looked like laser beams were going to come out of his eyes and he was going to start like eradicating people in the room. He just looked like, he looked like a five, like an angry five-year-old with an old man's face who like didn't get his way. Um, it I mean, the look on it, I can't even describe it. It was just this like, this angry, angry it's like, it looked almost, you know what? It's kind of like when you're a kid and you're in trouble, the look your dad gives you, but like, it looked like a child man was doing it. I don't know. I'm, those are, those are my descriptions. Um, it was so bizarre. And you know, it's the, it's kind of the most bizarre thing that Netanyahu's done publicly, um, in a public speech since his infamous bomb chart, (laughs) cartoon bomb chart. So of course it provided a lot of fodder for the internet and these wonderful, um, remixes, um, were made, but the rest of the speech was uh, like you know not quite as funny to make fun of. Well, not as much, not as easy to make fun of because it was just it was crazy. But it was also kind of um, what I think. Like my analysis is is after he railed against the Iran deal, which like that argument's over. Like that debate's happened and Israel lost, um, so that's over. So it was just bizarre that he was spending so much of his speech ranting against Iran. Um, he didn't say much about Palestinians, which is different. Um, he, of course, he mentioned, you know, the dark forces of militant Islam. But one thing that he did near, at the end, like the last 10 minutes or so of his speech was he spent it selling Israel to the world, like basically trying to justify why the world needs, like say the world needs Israel. Um, and it was kind of, it was desperate and it was a little bit different than what happens usually. And I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, he, Israel, Israeli leaders are aware that the image of Israel um, in the world is not a good one. Um, the world is increasingly disgusted and, uh, by Israel and, um, increasingly has less patience. Um, and so, yeah, he was just, he, he was basically trying to make this argument that Israel is like at the forefront of the fight, um, you know, for Western civilization and that it's not just defending itself by doing what it's doing. It's actually defending us in Europe and America, um, and so that's, and that's how he ended his speech. He was like, Israel's, you know, not just defending Israel, it's defending you and like, kind of like walked off the stage. So yeah, it was a bizarre speech. Um, and you know, I don't know if you have anything else to add, but. Well, I was going to just say, you, you mean he actually thinks at some point they might no longer be able to just cry anti-Semitism and get away <laughs> with everything that they do to yeah. Palestinians, you know? I mean, I think they, rec- I think that, I think they recognize that, which they should. And so I they do have to say though, like Netanyahu's theatrics and leaders like, like him, I, it's, it's a good thing in a way that people like him are in charge instead of people who, um, who are more like, who do a better job of appealing to liberals. 
um, because it really has unmasked just how um, just how like insane Zionism is. Um, and it's just like in this moral free fall. It always has been, but it's just like reached this sort of peak of like free moral free fall. And um, and yeah, I think Netanyahu recognizes that for sure. And I, I, I do have to add, though, like it's like the way he was. It was just kind of it was kind of so silly. He was like. Israel, thanks to, you know, basically thanks to Israel, you have computers and smartphones, you know, because Israel likes to always claim, like, that they invented everything, you know? Like, uh-huh. um, and so he was saying, you know, like, Israeli innovation is the reason for smartphones and and computers and agriculture and, like, the cure to Parkinson's disease, like, just crazy shit, you know? Um, and then at one point he literally said, Israel's even on your plate. Like, you can thank Israel for the cherry tomato. And I'm just like, What? Like, yeah, like, I guess I think Israel's responsible for the cherry tomato. So please let us keep, um, you know, <laughs> colonizing Palestine. So, <laughs> like, it's just the most ridiculous, absurd argument. Um, and I don't think it worked. So that's my analysis for the day. So uh, there was one thing I, I thought we should mention uh, outside of Netanyahu. It, it, it didn't get a lot of attention, but I just thought the, the words used were interesting. So uh, Cuba... Uh, Raul Castro, um, their leader, it was the first time that he gave a UN address. Uh, That's right. So uh, these were some of the words. I mean, it's it's interesting to see because uh, Castro's one of those leaders that brings out uh, something we don't talk a lot about, but but the the Latin American countries, which are typically these days aligned against the United States, not for unjustifiable, not for unjustifiable reasons. Um, and then there were African countries, their leaders that were very pleased with what he said. Um, and, uh, you know, he, this was, here's just one really good quote. There have constantly been wars of aggression and interference in the internal affairs of the states, the ousting of sovereign governments by force, the so-called soft coups and the re- recolonization of territories. So he was um, clearly condemning the United States and allies and uh, said that uh, he, he rejected the selective and discriminatory approach to human rights and the fact that uh, nothing is being done about the threat of climate change, which stems from a, quote, irrational and unsustainable consumerism. <laughs> which... that's, you know, that's really refreshing because it felt like really almost every single leader um... – that I, you know, that I saw or the people tweeting what they were saying or watched, um, was focused on ISIS. <laughs> um, so it's a refreshing, I, I didn't hear the, I didn't hear the Cuban speech. And it also so seems to reflect this unwillingness to be used by the United States. I mean, in, in some ways the, like it's been long overdue that you would lift an embargo, that you would start to welcome Cuba back into being part of the world. Uh, and, uh, Obama's patted himself on the back and it's like Castro stepped up and told the world that there's still a lot that needs to happen from the United States because they're still being to some extent isolated and, and ostracized in ways that just don't make any sense. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. And also, yeah, go ahead. So, um, uh, the last couple stories we have aren't hugely significant, but just seem like they might be fun to mention. So, uh, Along the lines of Latin American countries, you know, there's this character. I think, Ronnie, you might be best to explain who this person, Thor Halverson, <laughs> is before I go into what happened. So, so tell everyone 
Who is Thor Halverson? Well, Thor Halverson is a um, Venezuelan um, human rights activist. Um, no, he is Venezuelan, and he comes from a like aristocratic right wing family, one of like the oligarchic families that used to rule Venezuela, basically before Hugo, Hugo Chavez came into power. He's like from that right wing crowd of people um and he runs the what is it called his his i'm sorry can you remind me the name of his organization it's, it's the human hum- rights it's forum just, or something yeah, no, it's just human rights foundation foundation it okay sounds like a shell company I mean, it basically is. So he goes around the world. Like, he basically operates mostly in America. He's a neocon um, who's supported by other neocons. And he runs this organization that, and he's branded it as this human rights organization that supports pro democracy activists in repressive countries. Um, around the world uh, you know but of course like what that actually ends up being is like he he supports you know quote-unquote pro-democracy stuff like basically that that want to overthrow regimes the u.s doesn't like <laughs> so it's, it's a very neocon um neocon front right and uh and he's got tons of money and he's also been involved in like um you, you know in in these groups that are constantly trying to uh, to um to over like overthrow the venezuelan regime basically like he's got connections to people like you know like that and um and so yeah he's not a liked person um for people on the left because of his antics i mean he does like crazy shit like he went to north korea last year or um, like i mean to i'm sorry not to north korea he went to south korea last year and like did this weird spectacle where he sent balloons with like american propaganda messages in them to um north korea and like had jamie kerchick of the daily beast write about it like it was this really um brave thing to do um to send these like uh to send these balloons with messages that like aren't gonna do anything to change what's going on in north korea um and so yeah this is the kind of shit he does to like promote himself and his organization and then he gets like a ton of money from stupid people um who want to fund, you know, who think they're funding human rights. And then also people with just really nefarious agendas um, who, like, hate Russia and, you know, probably – and just, like, want to overthrow everything. They just, like, want regime change in countries and want to um, – and, and want to, like, help business interests and, you know, all the fun parts of the neocon ideology. He also um, gets away with being presented as this, you know, run-of-the-mill establishment human rights yeah. advocate because BuzzFeed and, and the New York Times will right. print – uh, articles about him and and how like oh he's great he doesn't just go out and tackle right wing issues or left wing issues he just cares about injustice and right and he does he like have he's has these um annual meetings I think it's like in Oslo um where he invites human rights activists to come and speak and stuff and sometimes the human rights activists he invites are not bad people um like i know one year he invited like recently he invited like a human rights activist from bahrain okay so like so yeah he like uses this as like a front um and he gets praised he gets praised for it by all these media organizations especially buzzfeed buzzfeed loves him so ken silverstein wrote a piece on thor uh, Ken Silverstein has been with uh, Counterpunch, written for Harper's, and been the editor, uh, and had a period of time where he's with The Intercept. So, so Ken put up a story about Thor uh, at a new startup called Byline Media, and it is apparently based out of the UK, and it's run by a guy named Sung Yun Lee. And uh, what happened is Thor 
saw this story and had his lawyer send a angry letter to Byline, which spooked them and frightened them and got them to take down the story. So uh, after um, um, multiple days of work, uh, this is what uh, Ken ha- actually told me, after multiple days of talking and the people at Byline getting really excited for this story, which was a profile expose of Thor Halverson, uh, they uh, took it down. And uh, what Sung Yun Lee told me over Twitter, and he later uh, deleted these tweets, but I took a screen capture of them. He said, we don't have the First Amendment like the U.S. We are having our lawyers review. British defamation and libel law is very, very bad. Uh, These platforms are much better legally protected in the U.S. with the First Amendment. Ultimately, we are a platform like Facebook and Twitter, not a publisher. We don't edit. Anyway, we will be switching our legal structure to a U.S. one soon and prevent these problems. We are also considering switching our legal structure to the U.S. one, blah, 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 blah. So, uh, it was taken down. And uh, I talked to Ken. Ken was furious. I told him that I thought Shadowproof, uh, my new media organization, we could republish this. And, and it would be really great to do. And so Ken, uh, this is what he, he had us put up at the top of his story, uh, that it was pulled after Thor Halverson complained through his attorney. Caving to a degenerate sociopath will only embolden him, so I'm disappointed that Byline.com pulled the story. Byline.com does not pay me. I raise money for my readers at its site. Blah, 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 blah. So it was this just incredible... Uh, it, this happened over like two or three hours where... You know, you know, his lawyer had the takedown, and then we got it back up. And I do have to say, Thor didn't uh, send us anything. Uh, no angry letter, no takedown notice. Uh, I guess uh, didn't want to go down that route. Uh, so uh, it, was, it was just a fun little episode. Yeah, that sounds, um, you know, I, I watched that, that, that unfurl, and that sounds very Thor. I just love that, the immediate, like, attempt to censor anything negative said about him. It's very, um... um Crybaby. I mean, baby. <laughs> I mean uh, it uh, it sounds like what you might claim uh, Chavez would do to some right wing media outlet. So right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I don't know. I'll let you handle your hypocrisy. Uh, so um, the last thing I just wanted to mention is we got some more Clinton emails this week, uh, pursuant to a court order. And generally, I would shrug at most of them, but there were some very interesting ones related to a subject that I've covered for the past five years, WikiLeaks, and there's just one in particular I wanted to highlight. There's a person who is a former campaign strategist for her 2008 presidential campaign. His name is Mark Penn. He's... um, I think he's done some punditry before, uh, but he's you know he's he's well known as a Democratic Party operative, and so uh, he sent a email to the State Department after the diplomatic cables started to uh, publish, and he complained. He said the administration seems quite weak to me. This is not like the Pentagon Papers or even the videos of the bombings. This is a wholesale capturing of the diplomatic material of. The United States was basically what I was saying. But the thing that really stuck out to me and that I wanted to call attention to on our show was that he said, This security breach is not a targeted breach to make a whistleblower point. It is a wholesale leak that should be treated as putting lives in danger. 
For what it's worth, I think you need to order a full-scale review and upgrading of the cybersecurity of the State Department immediately. And to offer a bounty, offer a bounty for the capture of those responsible. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is I, I just love that someone like him, that this is the kind of people that surround Hillary, that, that you, there is someone close to her that would suggest that the State Department itself, like, call for bounty hunters to go <laughs> find... I assume these are he thought these were people inside the State Department. Um, from the message, it doesn't quite sound like he wants to go after people in WikiLeaks. But either way, people inside the WikiLeaks organization or people who are actual State Department employees or government employees... Uh, I mean, at that point, uh, it wasn't exactly uh, common knowledge that Chelsea Manning was responsible for all of these leaks that were happening in 2010. So this is why you have him flailing around suggesting wild and crazy things like putting a bounty out to capture people. So uh, <laughs> I'm just I, that story sounds not real. I know it's it's very cartoonish. And the best part is that nobody seems to question it in these emails. The response from Hillary Clinton was like, interesting perspective. Please print <laughs> like she was, you know, and you know, what's interesting, though, yeah. is like is like um, the emails that have gotten the most attention, of course, came from um, Max Blumenthal's dad. Um, who was a former advisor to like the Clintons, and I guess it still kind of is. Um, and some of his emails that actually included, because Hillary, that's what she would say is like, blanks, this is good, please print, like, right? And those, a lot of, some of those emails were about Israel or related to Israel and um, had actually really good analysis in them or some, like, about what was happening with, um, like, the Gaza Flotilla massacre and things like that. And Hillary would be like, please print. And so those are the ones that got attention um, more than something like this, which is interesting, but not surprising. Um, but also the fact that, like, it's, you know, Hillary Clinton was surrounded by an array of people with varying opinions, and a lot of them were awful opinions. But she also had people that had some good information on certain issues, and she just, she just chose to ignore that and listen to people like the guy you're talking about, it seems more like that. Yeah, Um I did a whole piece, and I won't go into the rest of the details other than to say that if if you know if you want to go see it at Shadowproof, there's there were other perspectives that were shared, and the State Department certainly surrounded themselves with people who confirmed their view that uh, WikiLeaks was some kind of enemy organization that was like you know cyber terroristic <laughs> and attacking the United States. Is, you know, basically they took it very personal. They're like, you're trying to take away our ability to confidentially communicate as diplomats. So, uh, you're embarrassing us. <laughs> so, so that's it for these, this week's stories. Uh, anything else before we wrap? No, no. I mean, just, yeah, we'll be back next week. 